live. Hello everybody and welcome to Fish on Friday. Tonight I will be speaking a lot slower than normal. I've also got something in my head to take the shine away, but it doesn't seem to be working, so I'm sorry if anybody's blinded out there. Okay, on with the first question. Right. This, this, I printed this off, alright, that's a lot. Refreshing page, are we doing this right Rob? Yeah. Rob's, Rob's in the line here. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there we are, live now. And press. Here we are. Right. Hello, and once again, welcome to Fish on Friday. Um, this was redone. Uh, this came in last last week, and uh. There's a lot of repeat questions and I didn't have the time to compile them, so there's some people out there that have actually, um, you've, you've gone on and asked, asked the same question, but Stuart Anguish, any chance of an autobiography? Yes, there will be an autobiography. My problem is that uh, it's, um, I cannot, I, can, I need time to write. It's like when I'm in lyric mode, I'm in lyric mode. When I'm in other writing modes, it, you know, I need to kind of concentrate. And I, I said this last week, it's like when I'm on a tour bus and I'm in a, in a hotel room, that when I'm in a hotel room, I'm not in a situation where I can, I really have the time and the energies and the heads to get really into it. So when I finish, when I get the last, the final tour done, I mean, I'm going to be taking notes and I, and I do think about it on a regular basis. I get little ideas because, you know, I don't, I've read some really bad autobiographies. Um, Paul Stanley's one from Kiss was something actually pointed out to me and said, never write my book like this. And he was right. I've read Townsend's, which I thought was really good. And, but there was lumps out of it, which for some reason I, I kind of, I sort of understood. I mean, people have told me that, you know, legally I've got to be very careful if I'm going to talk about things. And if I ever do write something, I'm not going to be venting my spleen against anybody or being nasty or vitriolic, that's what I don't want to do. If something's affected me in any way, in a major way, then I'll write about it, but I'm not in there to kind of um, be nasty and, and turn into a red top myself, so. But there will be one, but I, I, I can't see it being a, a linear kind of autobiography. I think it's going to be like a series of memoirs. Like, I loved what David Niven did, like, with Moons of Bloom that I read years and years and years ago, and I loved that book and the fact that it kind of jumped about places. And I think that's where I've got to go. You know, somebody's even suggested, you know, doing an alphabetical thing and just coming up with loads of words that pertain to certain letters and, and just, you know, riffing on those. And, you know, maybe that's an idea. There's another idea that, you know, to, to, um, to um, hide all the innocent stroke guilty parties, that maybe there's a parallel work of fiction to be done. And, you know, there is an idea, one of the screenplay ideas I've got is about, you know, writing about a musician kind of similar, being in a similar to, to my circumstances. But I mean, that'll be, you know, when it happens, it's, it's not can be thought about. Matthew G. Bennett, does religion, faith, spirituality come into your writing? Uh, I'm not a religious person. I've, I've never been, I was, excuse me, 
This is alcohol-free wine with soda water. Which goes to another question later on. But, um, no, I mean, religion. I mean, I was brought up Church of Scotland, Protestant. I went to a Protestant primary school. And uh, I was kind of, you know, Dalkeith, my hometown, was kind of, it was a mining area and it was also an agricultural area. You know, I was pretty middle class. My dad, my dad owned a garage and I went to Kings Park Primary School, just a normal kind of public school. And, you know, even then, you know, it was, it was mostly football. It was the, the, the polarising factor and it was kind of, you know, there were Hearts fans, there were Rangers fans, and there were very few Hibs fans, of which uh, I was and still am. And um, I'm in a situation where, uh, I was in a situation where I was kind of in the minority and I didn't really understand what being Catholic and being Protestant was about. And I, I kind of reacted badly to it. I mean, I followed the tribe when I was younger. And uh, it wasn't until I was kind of, when I was around about 12 year old, 13 year old, and I played Sabutio with a, a guy called Joe Smith. And he was, we used to get together. He lived in the street, in Mitchell Street, next to the street I was brought up in, Glebe Street. And um, I used to go across to his place two, three times a week. And Alec Wiley lived next door. And Alec Wiley was a real Blue Nose Rangers supporter. His dad had all the records. He had all the orange records. And uh, and Alec was a great friend of mine as well. And so was Joe. And we all used to get together and play Sabuio. And it was one time, it was kind of, I remember asking Joe kind of what school he went to. And then I, I discovered he was a Catholic. And the question kind of popped in my mind. It was like, you know, what difference did it make? And, uh, and I, I, I got really put off that whole idea of sectarianism way back then. And, um, and I've never subscribed to it. It's, uh, um, so, I mean, religion, it's never been a thing with me. I, I, I don't trust religion. I mean, when I see it, especially a lot of the American pastors and, and the way that religion is involved in America, I, it really puts me off it. And uh, I think any religion, I kind of mistrust in a way. I, I have my own spirituality and I am guided by my own spirituality, but I don't kind of, um, I don't follow uh, structured religion. You know, I, I believe that there is something out there, you know, but I don't know what was that. I, I, I'll move on. It's too difficult. And it's, um, and I'm sober. <laughs> okay. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Mark Wilson has done some amazing art. Which of any is your favourite and anyone in particular more special to you than others? Alex Stewart. Um... I've loved all the Mark stuff. I mean, obviously, Misplaced Childhood was a big favourite, I think, um, because it was it was that was the album cover that grew from the the, the script and Fugazi covers. It was kind of the, the going out there. I think it reflected the lyrics. I think it was a very open album cover, and it was it was the first album cover that we had to do where we had to think about CD, because up till then, script and Fugazi were very much kind of designed for the gatefold era and it was um uh whereas when we came with cd you had to suddenly bring everything down and and get into that little tiny format so you needed a principal character so misplaced was was a favorite uh vigil was an obvious favorite and the the two pieces of artwork which i would swing the camera around and show you but uh it would probably cause a mess 
Um, th those two pieces of artwork, especially the front cover, you know, were always special. I mean, not only because it's a great piece of artwork, but, you know, b because of the times, because of what it uh, represented, you know, back in, in the late 80s. Uh, I've still got all the, 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 the original Marillion artwork that Mark did, which actually all belongs to my daughter Tara, who was part of the the settlement that I had with Marillion and that I don't actually own them, my daughter owns them and she gets them when I die. So, uh, but Mark's gonna have to touch them up because all the original uh, pieces are, especially Misplaced and, and Kaylee, uh, the, the, the type of ink that Mark used, it's, it's degraded over time in sunlight and it needs to be redone. So at some point Mark's gonna have to, you know, get his old ancient airbrush out and then retouch them all. But I mean, I, I think probably Vigil. I think I'll go for Vigil. Um, uh, Julian Hull said, will there be a final convention either in Leamington, Spa or Harrington? I'd like to do a convention. The problem with doing a convention is that there, there's so much organisation involved in it. I mean, I, I think and from the, the band's point of view, bringing the band together and rehearsing a band, I mean, it's, it's two weeks to rehearse a band for a normal tour. And, you know, I mean, when you go to the tour, you know, you, you're kind of the machine's getting tuned and the set is getting tuned as you play along. And a convention's great. I mean, the last Leamington one was spectacular. And, you know, it's you can hear that on the, the, the CDs. But, um, you know, the, the problem is that it, it, it takes a lot of time to bring a band together to do the two set lists because you don't just want to do one night. You know, you really want to play for at least two nights. The, the format in Harrington when we played, played the acoustic in St Mary's was wonderful. But again, St Mary's was a limited venue, it only held, I think, about 400 people. So we had to do two shows in St Mary's. And as a, as a vocalist, it's kind of trying. I would love to do another convention, you know, before, but I'm not really thinking about it at the moment. But it's, uh, but we've had some real special ones along, along the way. Sai uh, Dur. Obviously, Tolkien was an early influence to Marillion for the name alone. Are you a fan of his books? And what did you think of the Peter Jackson films? I loved Lord of the Rings when I was a teenager and I grew out of it. Um, it's a fantastic piece of writing and it was there for me in a time when I was listening to Pink Floyd medal. I remember reading that book in a, when I stayed up at Creef Hydro and we used to go up there for family holidays. And I remember I was really into Lord of the Rings at that time. And I used to go in these kind of, there was, kind of nature walks, we went all the way down by the River Tummel and went down the back of the golf course and through the woods. And I used to wander off on my own and I used to take the book with me. And I used to have Meadow and Dark Side of the Moon and uh, Led Zeppelin Four and Houses of the Holy, I think it was. And I had them on cassette and I used to listen to it on this little Philips cassette with my earphones in. And I used to go to magical places without substances. But it was, it was never a massive influence. And the films I loved. I loved them up to the point where when it got to the latter ones, there was so much CGI. It, 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 became, it was like monosodium, monosodium glutamate. It, it, it was giving me a headache, you know? It was, you know, you're kind of watching it and, and taking it all in, but it was giving me a headache. And I've actually, I actually put me off CGI and I, I don't really enjoy it as much as I used to. Ah, he's an interesting one. Eric Peter Schwartz. When Phil Collins left Genesis in the late 90s, did Tony Banks or Mike Rutherford ever reach out to you? Did you ever consider throwing your hat in the ring? Your work with Banks was great. Yeah, it was great. And um, 
When Phil left, yes, my name was in that. Um, the, the story was that uh, Tony Smith, the manager, had, had asked Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks, okay, well, who do you want? And Mike Rutherford had thrown the guys that were singing with him, which I think was, was Paul Young, Paul Carrick. And Tony Banks threw me, uh, I think um, uh, Roger Chapman from Family was actually considered at one point. And they couldn't make a decision on it. And eventually they settled on Ray Wilson, uh, which surprised me. Um, and it surprised me because I remember when Ray was, was working up here in a band, when the Funny Farm Recording Studios was on the go, he, he had this bar, he, I mean, Ray did cover versions and he sang all sorts of stuff from Bruce Springsteen to Genesis to all sorts of things. And he had one of those voices, it was, it was a great technical voice and he could kind of copy anybody. And um, uh, I remember him asking way back then when I was at the Funny Farm, it's like, well, you know, what do I do? You know, um, you know, and I said, well, I said, I think you should find the band that's already set up. And I said, you know, you're a good enough singer. And I said, if you can find, rather than setting up a band and trying to do it on your own, why don't you just join the band that's already set up? And then lo and behold, I was down at Heathrow Airport and Ray turned up in, I think it was a furry coat. And uh, he was he telling me all about how he'd just come back from a genesis rehearsal and they were about to go on tour. And he told me again and again. And, it was, you know. and then that happened. I, I didn't like that album at all. It was, uh, I thought it was, uh, it was very weak and it was, it was a shame that happened. But... Yeah, I was up for it. Would I like to have done it? In retrospect, no. Um, I've worked with Tony. I love Tony. I've met Mike quite a few times. I saw Mike uh, the last time I did the SES gigs in Guildford and it was, you know, he popped in to see me in the dressing room at Guildford. And uh, they're, they're great guys, but I don't know if I could, I could deal with them because I think my character is such that um, I think I'm a bit too loud for them. And at the same time, you know, I would be going back into a position and in the same way I touched on this on the last time we were we were talking or I was talking. And it was, uh, you know, working with Arian on the, the Electric Castle gigs, you know, it was an experience where I went out and, you know, you were told to do this, you had to hit the spot, hit the mark, sing the lyric, da-da-da. You were kind of very much controlled. You, you, you know, what you were trying to do, you were kind of harnessed. And... I don't think I would have liked to have been harnessed up in the Genesis machine. I think I would have found it a bit claustrophobic and I think I would have probably rebelled in that situation after a month, two months or so. But I mean, they're great guys and, you know, seeing them come out and tour again this year was another question pertaining to like, what did I think about them coming out and tour? It's like, great. It's like, wonderful. You know, it was interesting that, you know, people talk about me dropping the keys of songs. And I went along to see Genesis at uh, Twickenham. God, I can't remember when. But I think it was the last tour they did. And I took my daughter Tara with me. And uh, my friend John Crawley got me tickets. And I found myself singing along to, to the songs, right? Like a fan. I was just being fun. Really like, oh, right. And um, it was like, and I was singing in, in the right key. And I went, either my voice has got a hell of a lot better. But it was like, it was obvious that they dropped the keys and I, I didn't actually notice, you know. And uh, and this time around, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, there'll be another rethink on, on how it goes out. I mean, I feel for Phil. I mean, I, I, I've met Phil quite a few times over the years and uh, we've had a couple of discussions about bits and pieces of things and, and 
you know, I know he's he's, he's been ill, and uh, you know, he's with his back issues that I completely relate to. Um, you know, watching him on the on the some footage that I saw on YouTube or whatever, it was it was quite sad to see that he was obviously struggling. And I just hope he, he gets through this tour. I mean, it's it's a big undertaking, and you know, Genesis are not like me when I go on tour. I mean, this isn't you know, it's a big production. It's a lot of people. And it's a lot of responsibility, and it's a lot of pressure. And I, I hope the wee man gets gets on with it. I mean, I'm sure the band will be fantastic. I, I don't know if I'm going to go and see them. I, I don't know. It's yeah. You know, when the Rolling Stones played Edinburgh, I, I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to go and see them. It was uh, it wasn't as if they'd done anything new. And standing in a stadium, you know, you know, hundred meters away, watching somebody on a screen. You know, it's not my idea a gig, really. I mean, uh, again, that goes back to another question from last week. It was like, I, I don't like going to gigs and, and having to really take in the gig from a screen and hearing the live sound. It doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, that's me. Anyway. Uh, why was Cinderella search left of Fugazi, Cy Clark? Um, the thing with Marillion was that when we wrote an album, when we did the album, there was always the call for B-sides. They normally happened after the album was kind of written and in place. And we always did, I thought we did great B-sides, right? And one of the reasons we did great B-sides was we were relaxed and chilled out and it was the the pressure was kind of off us you know the album was done and it was like well what do you want to write it's a b-side it's got to be a new song and cinderella search was, was one of those songs and uh i love it as a song i think it's it's a it's a great song but it's really tricky i mean vocally it's very very tricky and that the way it kind of goes through keys i tried it a couple of times and i just I, d I didn't feel comfortable when I was singing it. I mean, I, I think, should it have been on Fugazi? I don't know. I think it might have. I, th I think it's more of a song that was more misplaced childhood-y than, than Fugazi. I think, it, as, a, as stylistically, I don't think it would have sat well on the Fugazi album. But, I mean, it's, it's a great song and I love it. I love the lyric on it. And, uh, and... I remember writing it, it was about, um, you know, I'd, I'd, it was one of the, the many breakups with, with my girlfriend at that time and I'd kind of done the Scottish port bit and kind of fallen in love with this girl that I'd met at the Marquee Club and it was, I was supposed to meet her down in Canterbury at a gig and uh, it was, uh, she never showed up and that was kind of the basis of the song and uh, at the time I was staying down at the, my, the Marilly manager's flat because I, I didn't have anywhere to live and I was staying, I was sleeping on a a, a, a fold away bed in the, the living room of his place and, and the, the girl in question happened to live very close to, you know, where he was he was staying. But it came to nothing, and but I got a song out of it, which is kind of the story of my life. <laughs> but uh, if you can't get a song out of something, it's wrong. Uh, when will Steve be doing why will Steve be done with the Clutching Live album uh, from Pear? Pear Hansen, hello Pear. Um, 
Can we expect a release before the summer? I really don't think so. Um, we're so tied up in the, the prep for Welshman. I mean, tonight, um, David Lamb, the director, the, the, the film director, he's sending me up the, the video for Garden of Remembrance tonight. Um, I've still got to talk with Miles Scarran. We were trying to set up this, uh, the idea with Miles Scarran, who, was going to do, who is doing the video for This Party's Over. Um, he's doing uh, some, a lot of animation to get round the fact that we can't bring a cast together because of the lockdown and the rules on, on people being together and distance, social distancing. And David Barris and I are going to shoot some green screen stuff up here again, as we did with the Velschmerz video, and going to send that to Miles, and Miles is going to bring that in and, and, and populate the, the animation where, where my face and where we're... But, the, you know, David, Dave Barris and I talked a couple of days ago and we just agreed that now is not the right time to be trying to do green screen work here at the studio. He's up in Edinburgh and with movements being so restricted, it's not worth, you know, we can wait a month. We don't have to have all the assets for the Velchmerz album across the Holland to the manufacturers until July, so we can, we can wait on that. But it's... Uh, but at the same time, I mean, Steve will be putting together the uh, the Clutch and Straws live stuff. I've, I've not spoken to him for about three, four days, actually. I mean, he's been out in the garden nearly all the time. And uh, But, I mean, he knows that, you know, that is one of the things we've got to set up. And I'd like to do it in the same way as we did the Return to Childhood, or the Farewell to Childhood album. And that there's like two shows, because there was, again, two different eras of, of that tour, with different personnel. But it will happen, but it's not going to happen before the summer. Um, we'll just have to see. You know, there's no rush on anything. You know, I mean, you know, I'm retiring, but no next week. No. Um, Ian Jenkins, which song are you proudest of writing, and which do you think? Why did I write that or write it like that? And oh, come on, three questions. Let's just get greedy, son. Right? The song I'm proudest of writing, I don't know. Um, People ask me about favourite albums and it's like father's been asked who's your favourite child. It's kind of, they all come at different times, they're all special for different reasons. They're all born in a moment, you know, they reflect a moment in my life and, you know, Vigil I'm really fond of, but, you know, Fellini Days and, and, and Rain Gods with Zippos are, are, are you know, I mean, I've, I've put on Rain Gods with Zippos on, on a night. You know, maybe when I was putting a set, I thought I'll have a listen to some of the tracks. And I've gone, what, what a brilliant album, you know, and although things I would have done differently on it. But, um, but it's, it's kind of strange. I mean, which song by another artist do you wish you'd written? Um, every time I hear Sunshine on Leith by the Proclaimers, <laughs> Craig and Charlie, I kind of go, I wish I'd written it. I've never, it's like, one of the things we used to wrote is, it's like, you know, every Easter Road, Hibernian are the Proclaimers, right, right. I never kind of get mentioned in dispatches or anything with Webs. And, uh, and every time I hear that song, I go, that must make them so proud to have that song after every kind of major Hibs event, which the, the wags out there will say, well, there's very few of them, so you won't hear it much, but you do hear it quite a bit Easter Road. And, uh, and it's a brilliant song. It's a fantastic song. Uh, another one that I really love, and it's one of my favourite all-time songs, is uh, Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. That lyric is just absolutely stunning. 
and it's just it's such a beautiful beautiful song and it can always bring a tear to my in at two o'clock in the morning when I'm sitting there slightly wasted but uh, Chris Chandler I know it's hard to tour the US thank you we'd love some sort of tour even if it's a stripped down two to three person band right I really wanted to bring Fishheads Club to America. It was um, the Fishheads Club unit was the perfect unit to come across to America, and it got completely and utterly kiboshed um, because every single person apart from me was going to have visa issues, and I'm not saying any more than that. But to get visas for the other members of the entourage would have been just about impossible. And I was absolutely gutted. And to the personnel who remained nameless, uh, the reasons why they couldn't get visas was because of events that happened on the Fishheads Club tour itself. And that really annoyed me. And I would have loved to have brought that unit out because it would, it would have been a perfect key to the door I think I think if the Fishheads Club tour had come to America or North America I think it might have opened a big door to us to bring the electric unit back you know and it would have been a little bit easier to tour with just having some of the expenses taken off and but at the moment you know let's just go there I've answered the American question so many times as I said last week you know with the amount of albums we sell in America, you know, you could hire a jumbo jet and come across. You know, we don't sell, I do not sell thousands and thousands of albums in America, right? And I need to sell thousands and thousands of tickets on American tour, and I'll leave it at that. Right. Stephen John Campbell, will there be a chance for other copies of Misplaced Childhood coming out like script for a jester's tear? Um, the thing is with the, the script deluxes, um, they're big. They're big value items, right? And Warner's basically treat this like a limited edition. After the current limited edition is sold out, it goes into what they call a legacy edition, which is basically stripped down. So it will not be anywhere like the deluxe sets. There'll be no more Blu-rays, Blu-ray sessions, whatever. Last of the clutching album, they relented because of the demand and they printed some more extra after it. But in all honesty, once my script for Jester's Hughes are sold out, unless there are returns from other uh, other companies, other retail outlets or whatever, then that's it, you know? And we move on to the legacy issue. It will be a remastered album, but it won't have all the trimmings like there are on the deluxe versions. So that's all I'm saying. Uh, uh, da, 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 da. I'm just picking them out here. Joe Beer. Hi, Joe. There are two dates for November this year. Do you not feel this is still a little too early to book because of the virus, the travelling involved, and the accommodations while parties? It's got to end sometime. Um, I don't know when. Um, I can either sit back and basically wait until somebody says go and then try and book a tour and in all honesty i don't want to be in that rat race because when the lockdown is stopped when it finishes when it comes to an end 
when somebody blows the siren and says, you know, we've got an all clear, every man and his dog, the dog's puppy, puppies, the man who walks the dog, the man who feeds the dog, and everything to do with the dog and that man are going to be looking for gigs, right? And to put a tour together, right? Because when you book a tour, you've, you've got to get a thread of dates that all make sense that you're not doing Stockholm to Milan, Milan to like Paris, Paris to Poland, you know? To, to put a tour in, in, in sequence, right? It, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do for an agent, for, um, for myself, for whatever. And we have to take a chance. And that's why we've booked the dates. And if it comes to pass that, you know, we're still in a lockdown situation or we're still in a ban on mass gatherings in November, then, you know, it won't be happening. The only thing I can say is, like myself, I mean, I actually should have been in, in Spain on holiday this week. And, you know, I, my flight was repaid because the virus, because of the, the recommendations not to travel to Spain, etc. So that's all I can say is if you're booking and it's the virus is the reason why something's pulled back, then, you know, it's, you'll get your money back. But I have to take the chance. I have to take the chance and, and book the dates and just keep my fingers crossed that, um, you know, it happens, you know, it, it's weird. I mean, you know, I, I've said, I said last week, I'm very lucky and Simone and I are very, very lucky that we're here and we're on, we're, we're here in East Lothian and we're in a space in the country and I've got a garden where I can go out. And, you know, yesterday I was, you know, I was putting my tomato seed in and um, working in the greenhouse and, you know, there's tatties chitting, there's all sorts of things happening here. And uh, I can do that. It's, it's something else I can do as well as, I mean, I, I have to say that, you know, in that, this last week, I've been finding it difficult to find garden time because of, the, of demands. I mean, there's been so many demands. I'm, do, I'm doing about one major interview a day at the moment, mostly with Skype. And the last week has all been interviews for Holland and Belgium. And because of the lockdown, the interviews are longer. So I'm doing every interview is an hour at least. And uh, it's um, and between that and the business side, again, we're still in the process of setting up the mail order. I mean, to give you an update, uh, Matthew Ballinger at Fuse Metrics has been doing a brilliant job um, bringing everything together and, and bringing the, all the, the bits and pieces of the website together that Rob Scarron's brought in and put together. And we're talking with the Royal Mail about getting all the various bits and pieces and all the, the weights and calculations sorted out, so the algorithms and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, that's taken up quite a bit of time and a, a lot of headspace here. And that will be up. We'd hope to have it running next week, but it's going to be the week after mainly because of contractual things that we have to put together with Royal Mail. So, I mean, there's been all that going on. There's been everything else going around the album. I've been listening to mixes and, um, uh, you know, Callum's been sending me stuff and, you know, been listening to that back and forth. So I'm re really, really busy. But, I mean, uh, but you know, as I said, I'm, I'm lucky I've got the space here. I'm, I'm, I go out once a week to, to, to the supermarket mask on, disinfectant, you know, in the car go down, which is, is strange living here. I'm the only person in the house, but I'm, I'm glad we've got this space. I mean, you know, my mother's through there. 
In fact, just before I came on air, I was doing there. I was doing something at my mum's jigsaw. My mum gets really kind of, she's a little bit colour blind, just a little bit, and it's like, and she has to get the pieces out. And I've got today. I was finding the cat bits. I was building the cats in the jigsaw, and I'm watching. I'm going my watch, going. I've got to go. I've got to go live in ten minutes. I'm going. Oh, the cat bit. The cat bit. And I've got really addicted to these bloody jigsaws. It's not good. But I'm so glad that my mum's through there and she's kind of isolated within the isolation because, you know, 87 year old, you know, you hear these horror stories coming out of care homes. And I'm just so glad that she's here and that she's, she's not in a care home. I mean, uh, you know, you, when you switch the news on at night, I mean, it, it, I said last week, you know, it is like watching a very bad science, 1970s science fiction film. I mean, it's, it's sometimes difficult, you know, to kind of, go, yeah, I live in this world that I'm catching through the screen. And uh, so that's, you know, yeah. Anyway, I'm here. But as I said, touring, the touring's booked. If it happens, it happens. I hate the way the media keep on going about asking government ministers, you know, when is it going to be shut down? You know, when it, when is it going to be over? It's like, let's just run with it, you know? I don't think anybody can put a time or a stop date on this. It's like, we just got to run and just see where it goes. You know, there's a lot of people down out there and watching the hospitals being overwhelmed, you know, that I think should be a major concern rather than, you know, um, we can deal with it. We can deal with it. Anyway, I'll move on. Uh, Peter Freund, is there any chance of the live video Peter Rieger, God bless him, yes, made of the Dusseldorf 1991 show, did he ever see the light of day? I have never seen the live video of the 1991 Dusseldorf show, and I've got no idea where it is. Peter Rieger was our, our promoter back in the, the 80s, he was a major German promoter, and I, I don't know what happened to that film, I, I, don't, I don't even know it's, it's, whether it was archived the war. I mean, there was a really annoying thing about misplaced childhood in the early days. I mean, what you have to remember is that uh, um, back in those days, people were shooting on film. You know, it was, you know, it wasn't digital, you know. And so it was a very expensive operation, you know, to, to, to shoot, to, to, to do a live video of a concert. And that's the only excuse I'm going to give them. I think EMI could have, uh, could have filmed the Whistler Sheldon tour. And, you know, you know we had the, the, the Lorelei clutching, which kind of eked into it, but it would, have been, it would have been nice to have had a kind of memory, but we don't have, there, there is no footage, you know, apart from occasional snippets of TV. There's no, there's not a full, uh, full concert um, a full concert film set on, on anything, which is uh, it's a shame, it's an absolute shame. So, be it. No. Uh, Gary D. Phillip, jam and marmalade, thick or thin cut, marmalade, thick cut, did it, Paddington beer underneath my hat, mate. Uh, Giza Bun is pretty synonymous with your live performances. This is from Rand Randy Valentine. Oh, hi, Randy. But I read in the early days, fans would actually bombard the stage with buns. Did this actually happen? 
Does it happen now? Is there a reason it stopped? Well, I can tell you why the reason it stopped. Was a member of the band struck? Yes, there was a member of the band struck. It was me on a number of occasions. Right? Although I did become quite adept at ducking them. Geezer Bun started up at the, the Kinsey New King King on, as far as I can remember. And it was a joke. The, the joke was, how does an elephant ask for a bun? Geezer Bun. Right? Ugh. Scottish humour. And it started, and then it, was, it became Giza Ban, Giza Ban, and the chant started. And people started to throw uh, various pieces of kind of dough-based confectionery ass, like donuts and buns, lots of buns. And if there was, you're talking about 30, 40 buns would come at you on the stage. And it was, it was all in the early days of the 80s, but it's kind of died off. On some of the gigs, you, you see, you can still do a Scottish gig and the, the, the chant will go up. And we actually developed, we developed a, a thing where, you know, especially in my solo stuff, you know, we, we started to write a little song around it and we used to play about with it. And it was fun, but it, I was glad, you know, it got a little bit much. And when you're standing on a sugary based bun on a stage with your trainers, it's not pleasant and it's rather messy, especially when it's filled with cream. So I'm glad it stopped. And don't think for one minute you should be banging buns. Bring other things. There's a young gentleman, and I can't remember his name, and I always forget his name, but he's small in his beard, and he always gives me honey, and I love him for that, right? And thank you, and I say this now publicly, thank you for the honey that you give me. I get jars of honey left, especially when I play London, and he leaves me Tunnock's Caramel Wafers, right? And send me an email, because I keep on forgetting your name, and I've got the name of your, the, the honey place where you get the honey from. But thank you. And I'd rather have caramel wafers delivered at the front of the stage and laid on the monitor than a cream bun thrown angrily at my bus. Thank you. Uh, Jason Kenny, is there any unreleased material that might see the light of day at some point? Um, when I hear about people like Bruce Springsteen writing kind of 40 songs and then picking the 10 best ones for his album. I really don't relate to that, you know? When we set out to write an album, it's a building process, you know? We don't kind of do a scattergun approach and then pick out. And anything that's not any good is discarded, right? Things that are a little bit good, and we've, we've, we've picked some stuff up in albums, even in the Marillion days, there was stuff, you know, where it was like, we did something on the previous albums, oh yeah, that was quite good. And we didn't have a place for it in, a, in, in, in the songwriting of that album, and it kind of moved on. And uh, there was, there's been a, f a few bits and pieces like that, but as far as songs that have never been released, nah, they don't exist. They really don't exist. Material, um, when I finally peg it, my daughter can spend months going through this endless live material, loads and loads and loads of live material, that, from my solo career especially. Um, but to be honest, I've got no real desire to kind of release all that, you know? There's enough when we do the vigil remaster, when it eventually comes out, you know, there will be a lot of live material on that that you've never heard before. But as far as kind of original songs, no, there's, there's, there's nothing sitting there in the, in the, in the, um, 
and they said to me, somebody asked me, and I don't have his name, but I remember the question when it came in. Uh, they asked about the, the Polska thing. Polska was a film that was made uh, in Poland during the Fishheads Club tour. And it was some really good friends, Aki, Aki made, uh, a friend of was Aki made this, this movie. And it premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival. And it was, a, it was a really neat film. And we were going to do something with it and it got left and there were some legal ramifications in Poland between people that were involved with the production of the film and stuff. But I mean, the one thing is, apart from the Fishheads Club DVD, which we filmed here in this very room in the studio, and the, the, uh, the other Fishheads Club, the, the live uh, CD, there was acres of tape or, or acres of, uh, of songs. Um, because, I mean, a lot of the time in the Fishheads Club tour, when it was just Frank Usher and Foss Patterson and myself, we could kind of, um, we just picked and chose what we wanted to play. And so the setlists were, we had a skeleton of maybe five or six songs. But by the time we got about eight months into the tour, we had such a library of material that we all knew that we would just pick it out and if we felt like it, we'd play it. So a lot of the set lists were really different. So on this new website that Matthew Ballinger's putting together and Rob Scan's put together, they're on about putting up, going back to something we used to have on one of the old websites, which was having a list of all the tour dates and then having all the set lists for all the tour dates. And um, one of the things that I'm really not looking forward to because I don't think it's even feasible is to put together the set list for, for that Fishheads Club tour. But I do have so many hours and hours and hours of recordings from, from that tour. And what I would really like to put together at some point, which this is maybe something that will be done after the next tour and before the farewell tour, is basically put together a, a kind of like a compendium, like a whole collection including the, the Polska uh, video and putting that together with all the acoustic versions of all the different songs, you know, so that it's a, it's a real big, uh, um, it's, it's just a, a big collection of all those acoustic versions. And I, I'd like to do that because I loved that tour. I loved the Fishheads Club tour. I, I loved the whole vibe of it. I loved the performances and, and everything about it. And uh, it'd be nice to have that represented, you know, with a, with a kind of, you know, a big glossy collection of that. So, there it is. Um, Matthew, Tibalt, any plans for live albums of your last two? Yeah, we've done, I answered that already, but yeah, I mean, the live albums are really important. I mean, I've been, I have been kind of... I've taken some hits going, why is there so much live material? And I think some people forget about live material and why it happened, you know? If I didn't have those those albums, the Crypt Creepers album and everything that came out in, in 1993, I wouldn't be here. Um, when I left Polydor, or when Polydor dropped me, I was in a situation where I had virtually no income and I was trying to get the Dick Brothers label up and running. I had, uh, I'd done the songs from the Mirror album with Polydor, but at the time they owned that, they, they had that under license. And I was in a situation where uh, we needed to finance the Suits album. 
And what actually happened, the true story behind it was that I had these live tapes, there had been no live albums put out previously. And we went to a guy in Holland, or I was given the contact of a guy in Holland who was a known bootlegger. And we'd made a lot of money off myself and Marillion in the past and by selling bootlegs, right? And obviously we had no control over, over bootlegs. We've got this, I mean, I've got some, I've got a whole collection of bootlegs here on vinyl and, and CD. Some of them are great quality. A lot of them are recorded from the radio, the BBC sessions from Nottingham, etc. And there's other that are crap. I mean, I've got a, I've got a little briefcase that I was given by a good friend of mine called Piers Hernu, who's a journalist, and he had it, he collected them, he was a major Marillion fan. And it's an entire briefcase of, of Marillion cassettes, right, or live shows. But most of them, the quality is dreadful, you know? And I decided back in that 93, 94 period that we needed, I needed to get, to get some sort of finance to keep, to get the record company going. So I did a deal with this Dutch bootlegger and he put them out on a, a, a series which came out as a box, which I think was called uh, The Mask. It was about the same time as the book I did with Mark Wilkinson. And, um, and we basically got an advance from him for giving him the rights. I mean, we knew we were never going to get any statements and any of the statements we were ever going to get. I mean, it was like, you know, pick a number and half it, you know? But, so what I did was I then bootlegged myself. So I bootlegged the bootlegger. And I put out all those albums as my own official bootlegs. And it became a thing that really helped. And, you know, the musicians that play on the tours, they get an extra bit of bunce at the end because it's like, yeah, we've done the tour. So they get, you know, a little bonus for the fact that they get paid for, for, for playing on that live album. And for me, you know, it, it keeps, you know, it basically keeps the bootleggers away. And, you know, there's another release that fans want to hear what happened on that tour. I mean, Farewell to Childhood was, was, was an exceptional live album, but mainly because probably the misplaced childhood kind of side of things. And it's, um, this is where my wife is walking through the background trying to keep very, very quiet. <laughs> Are you filming that? So yes, I mean, the bullies, the live albums have become part and parcel of it. I mean, it, it means it just, it fills a gap. If you want to buy them, you buy them. If you don't want to buy them, don't buy them. You know, they don't sell in huge quantities by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, they, they plug a gap in their memory. I mean, you know, I know that Marillion do, uh, you know, downloads of every gig and I, I could never do that. I mean, number one, there's a difference between Marillion and myself and that Marillion are, they're a self-contained unit. Whereas, you know, I've got musicians on the outside and, you know, as soon as you get in the downloads, you, how many downloads did that gig do, da da da, and then you go, nah. Just leave it. Because that for me is overkill. You know, it's uh, you know I think you know one live album yeah for for a tour I think is is, is pretty good going. So uh, that's what it is. Uh, I'm trying to take a live one. Austin Cole had the Marillion Five Eight bootleg. A lot of swearing on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually it's amazing, isn't it? I'm actually doing this, and I'm not. I'm not swearing. It's uh, I try and temper myself, um, and I hope I'm I hope I'm speaking slowly enough for all you people out there, English and non-English speaking people. So uh, here we go. Sing some for us in here, please. No. Yep. Thanks for the good wishes. 
Um, uh, are you going to film any of the rearranged dates? Probably, but I don't know yet. That's from John Kirk. Uh, Anna Lignani, hello dear Derek, what will your Easter menu be like? Are you planning something special? I've got no idea. Um, at the moment, it's like whatever's in the freezer. I've got no plans to go out with a, with a, the gloves and the mask to go out and get a chicken or whatever. So we'll see what goes. I mean, I, yeah, I'll, you know, I like cooking, but we'll find something. You know? We've got about 42 kilograms of chickpeas out there, so it'll probably something to do with chickpeas. Um, but yeah, we like cooking. My wife's, Samora is a, a brilliant cook. So it's like, I always know it's, if she's at, she's at the helm in the kitchen, it's going to be special. Terence Quinlan, when you did the Nelson Mandela gig, the, the late great bass player of Japan, Mick Karn, played, would you ever have considered asking him to play in any of your albums as he played with Steve Wilson? Yes, I did. There was a point where uh, I was thinking about asking Mick Karn's. I think it was when uh, Peyton left and we were coming into... I was thinking about it around, around about then. I mean, Mick was a, a, a lovely guy and an absolutely brilliant bass player. And it was one of those things where we did actually talk at one point about, you know, you know, we have, we have to do something together. And, uh, and it never happened. And he was a, a terrible, sad loss. And, it, and he was just such a wonderful, uh, innovative bass player. Like, really cool guy, really cool guy. Look at that. Stop sending me messages, Andreas, you pain in the ass. Um, do you have any regrets about not playing Live Aid? Were you asked and where did you all watch it, assuming you did? That's from Kev Shaw. I was at Live Aid, but I wasn't performing. Well, I did perform. I was actually singing in the choir. And if you look at it right at the end, when they're doing it, I'm actually standing pretty close to Billy Connolly. Um, and I think some of the Spandau guys. It was really annoying because when, uh, I don't want vaping, just don't even ask. Just don't say, you should stop vaping, it's really bad for you. I know it is. There's lots of things that are really bad for me at the moment, but this is just gives me my nicotine fix. It's like better than taking a load of ammonia and all the rest of it, right? I mean, I'm not even drinking alcohol, right? Live Aid. When they put together the idea for the single, right, Marillion were on tour in Italy at the time. And I was asked to come back to sing on the Live Aid single. And John Anderson, our manager, decided that I was on tour and we can't cancel gigs for me to go back and sing on the Live Aid single. So it was like, What's the point? It's a charity single. We're not cancelling gigs. When it came down to uh, um, when it came down to the actual bill, right? The bill had obviously been put together months and months beforehand. And when that bill happened, I think Keely was still in the top five, and Misplaced, I think, was the number one album at the time. And we weren't asked because I didn't sing on the live album. All the people that got the slots were people that were involved with the single. And, you know, and we were kind of, we were not chosen, 
Uh, it would have been great, I think, if Marillion had been on that Live Aid bill. It might have changed their lives forever. I think when it came down to America, that we were still desperately trying to get in there with, you know, EMI were desperate to get us going in America and it wasn't happening at all. Um, I think if we played Live Aid, it might have been a, 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 a huge opportunity to, to give us an introduction to America, but it never happened and I was there. And the entire day of Live Aid, I actually woke up in a hotel. I was, again, it was one of those times where, you know, I was relatively homeless. And I was kind of, I was in a hotel in, in London. I remember waking up in the day and, and going up and, and as I arrived, you know, status quo were, were sorting themselves out. And I'd gone up the day before to meet up with some people and, and caught the vibe and, you know, and I had a great night the night before as well. And then went up in the day and I spent the whole day answering questions. When are you on? When are you on? What time are you on it? And it was like, we're not on. It's like, what, what? Everybody was so surprised that we weren't playing on the day. And I think all you have to do is look at what, what, what Live Aid did for, for Queen, for example. I mean, I mean, Queen were, I wouldn't say dead in the war, but I mean, they were, at, at the pre-Live Aid, you know, they weren't, they were known, but they weren't kind of, uh, there was no major buzz about Queen at that time and Freddie's performance at Live Aid basically gave that band such a huge shot in the arm and that relaunched their career, completely relaunched their career. And, you know, it was just one of the things. I mean, I had a great time in the day. I met lots of people. I met lots of friends who were, were playing, you know, and a great time. It was a fantastic day. I mean not just for the music, but I mean, the, the vibe as well that was around in, in the crowd and, and in the stadium that day, you know, it really started to make you feel good about the human race for a change. And uh, it was an immense, and I've still got in, in my control room, in my office, I've still got the, my access, all the areas, live aid pass that I got. But as I said, my only participation in that event was I was actually grabbed by Billy Conley, you know, and he's, come on, come on. And he pulled me up the stairs and we were singing, you can point me out at the back, if you freeze free. Um, so that was Live Aid. Uh, John Whitehead, would you consider writing a book that contains the background and inspiration for every song you've written? Yeah, I've thought about that. I'd like to do that. It would be nice to get a compilation of all my lyrics. I mean, Again, Matthew Ballinger at Fuse Metrics, he actually, we've got this thing where every song that's listed on every album on every web, on the website has now got the lyric attached. And, you know, I think there's about 180 lyrics now. And, uh, you know, when, when somebody comes at you with that number, you kind of go, what, you know? But, um, but yeah, I'd like to put together a, a kind of a compendium and, It'd be nice to put out, I mean, on a lot of the remasters, you know, the, the, the remasters we've got of the albums, there's a lot of song explanations of the songs on those, right, within the, 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 the 3,000 word sleeve notes that are on every remaster. But I'd like to kind of try and, uh, it'd be nice to put together a slice of lyrics, but I've got to deal with EMI and stuff regarding that because that comes into another question that was asked, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, I'd like to do it. Uh, 
Mark Denton, what album would you class as your hidden pleasure by an artist that nobody would expect? And why is it the voice or production or something else? There are two people, right? There are a couple of albums up there and they're both best ofs. One is a best of Dean Martin and the other one is a, is a great Sinatra uh, best of. And I love the voices and I love the vibe. And it's like, if I'm sitting there on my own at night, it's, uh, you know, I will, I will put on a Sinatra. I mean, it's just so lush. You know, the orchestrations, the arrangements, you know, the voice, you know, the lyrics that are on, on, on those albums. I mean, you know, if you're not a Sinatra fan, you know, have a listen to it. It's a little bit more than just my way. And, uh, and Dean Martin, you know, was, I, mean, I love Dean Martin. I actually have a bootleg of Dean Martin that was given to me by somebody who remains nameless. And it was from the desk at the Royal Albert Hall. And it's got the whole sound check on it as well. And the guy was a complete professional. It was great. His stage image was always somebody that, um, his stage image was always that of the drunk. He always had this, you know, the glass and it was like, hey, a little bit of bourbon, you know, blah, blah, blah. The guy was drunk in ginger ale, right? He was never drunk on a stage. It was all part of the act that he was this kind of like, zaza zaza and he's a genius. I mean, his, his acting work that he did with Jerry Lewis as well, I loved. I, his straight man stuff, but his voice was just in, incredible. And he's some, somebody I wish I'd met. You know, I, th I think I would probably prefer to have met Dean Martin rather than, than Frank Sinatra. Because he just sounds like a guy that you'd want to hang about with. And the, the fact that he's like, you know, he wasn't, you know, the, the story is that he, he was a real family man. He was very kind of, um, his, his, with his, his wife and him were, were very, very close and he wasn't a big party animal by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, he just seems like a really interesting guy, but I loved his voice. And uh, like I said, those are my two guilties, I suppose. Like Sinatra and Martin. Uh, Matt Hawkins, do you still scuba dive? And where's the best place you've gone diving? Uh, scuba diving. Um, I uh, I first I got my 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 Nui ticket, the North North American blah 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 underwater thing. I got that in Beckwith when I went on my honeymoon, my delayed honeymoon to my my first wife. And uh, we went to Beckway in the Caribbean and I decided to take up scuba diving. And um, that was in 19, what would it be? I got married in 87, so it was, I didn't actually have a honeymoon until 1988 because I was on tour, right? That's another story. But um, I picked up a scuba diving, my scuba diving ticket there. It was a fresh water ticket, open water, a basic ticket, dive to like 30 metres, although I did a couple of deeper ones when I was out there. I was out there for about two weeks, three weeks. And I didn't really do anything with it. I, I went diving and when I went to Kenya in 1992 and I dived in the Indian Ocean. And I'd, it'd been so long. I was like, my, my, my diving skills technique were rubbish. And it wasn't until uh, 2010, and in 2010, I'd gone through two vocal operations and I had a disastrous 
second marriage, which I don't even bother talking about. It doesn't even count. I don't count it really. And I was sitting there and uh, at the beginning of 2010, and I was in a real mess. Um, and I needed to get myself out of the dark hole I was in because at that time I didn't know if I had a voice. Uh, my personal life was in, it was a shambles and I had to pull myself together. And there was two things I started doing. One of them was going hill walking and I went on the West Island Way and my, my, I swear uh, Rab, who's one of my best mates, who lives locally, who helps me up here in the garden. Rab and I got together and we started going walking places. We did the West Island Way walk and things. And, um, and Rab was a diver and he suggested that we should start diving. And I went for my, uh, my dry suit ticket. And the, just to roughly explain, when I was diving in the Caribbean, I was diving in, in a wetsuit. And a wetsuit means that, you know, the water goes through the suit. Dry suit means that you're in a sealed suit and it's a completely different form of diving. And I got really into it. And it was what I needed at the time because because of where my head, my head was scrambled, my head was full of chocolate frogs at the time. And because I had to, because of diving, I had to kind of get into the entire kind of, um, the detail. And you, you know, basically if you screwed up, you were going to kill yourself, right? Or you were going to do yourself some bad, bad hurt, right? So, you know, learning the gauges, learning the pressures, studying and doing a bit, it kind of got me refocused and it really helped me through that, that, that time. And, and on top of that, I was going out, I was meeting other people, like meeting strangers, going out and dive boats of people. And, you know, I was Derek and it was wonderful. And from there, I kind of I started to get more and more dives in and it kind of peaked and, uh, really at the beginning of 2011 and I went away to Cuba. I went away to Cuba on my own for six weeks and uh, I did 35 dives in Cuba. And I just went down there and it had all been kind of organized or semi-organized that I went to these places and then I'd meet up with a dive center and then I'd go out and sometimes I'd spend two, three days with that dive center. Sometimes I'd do a, a day, like I did a day cave diving and then then I went down to uh, uh, Santiago del Cuba and I did a bunch of dives in there. And I had some fantastic dives down in Cuba. They were the best dives. But when I came back from, uh, when I came back from Cuba and I went back to doing dry suit diving again, because Cuba was wetsuit because it was warm waters. And I go back to dry suit and it was just, I hated it. And I went down at St. Abs where I used to go diving at the nature reserve, the marine reserve. And, uh, you know, and I went in the water and suddenly you're back to the torch and, you know, you know, three metres in front of you. And at the same time, I wasn't, I wasn't diving as regularly. And, you know, if you're going to dive, you've got to keep it up. You, you've got to keep going with the, you've got to keep those tables and everything else in your head. You've got to keep your fitness levels up. And I was basically getting to that age where I was going to become a statistic on the back of a dive magazine. I was the guy that was going to have the, the, the heart attack in the Far Islands. And I went, you know what? I'm rolling loaded dice here. And I just went, nah, I'll stop it. I had a wonderful time. I've still got my wetsuit. I've still got my dry suit. And I've still got a bunch of gear out in the garage, which I'm going to have to get rid of some sometime. But it's, uh, I think if I went on holiday, you know, I'd definitely do a 20 meter dive, 30 meter dive as a sports diver, you know, but as far as, you know, series 40 meter stuff, you know, and you know, that, nah, too old. 
you know. And the beard doesn't go well with a mask. By the way, the beard, I'm growing it, so when the lockdown comes out, then I'm sure they're going to be looking for Santa Claus. So I'm going to definitely get a job with Santa Claus. I think it looks pretty cool. But it's, uh, I've got a, a vowel. Normally I go down to the Turkish guy down in Harrington who does, I love going down there. It's one of my rituals to go down to the Turkish barber and I get the shave, they get the lines on. My wife loves it, she thinks it's great. But I've got this old vowel thing and I got it out last week and I tried to do a cut and it was like it was like a torture device. It was pulling hair out rather than cutting it. And I was WD forty fish oil on it and everything trying to oh, messy. So I'm just gonna let it grow and see what happens. Um so stop sending me messages. That's not to you, it's just other private messages. Uh, Nigel Sherwood, what created the desire to give up the booze? Curious, I bet you are. I bet you are, Nigel. Um, I mentioned this last week and this week, uh, yesterday was 15 weeks. So next week will be six, uh, four months, four months, right? And that, believe it or not, this, this sounds really bad. This is the longest period I've ever had. It's ever been the longest non-alcohol period I've probably had since I was 16. I mean, when I was 16, you know, it wasn't a kind of weekly thing, but, you know, four months of my life where I've, I've, I've not had a drink, that's, that's the longest ever, and I feel really good for it. The reason I stopped was on the run-up to Christmas, with the band being here, the studio happening, and the recording happening, I was starting to accelerate, and my tolerance level was going up, and I realised it, and there was a little light going off at the back of the head that was just going, warning, Will Robinson. And after, and with it being Christmas, it was studio band, and then up to Christmas, in the Christmas period, it was like, you know, the thrust button was pushed. And on Boxing Day, I just went, you know what? I cannot deal with the singing. I can't deal with the album and all, everything else that goes around the album. I can't deal with the tour. I can't deal with promotion. I need to start waking up in the morning with a clear head and getting sharp again, you know? I mean, uh, my memory was getting a bit hazy. And I went, I really need to get this back back together again, new shot. And I just stopped. And it was that easy. And as I said last week, it was a, apart from a couple of tumbleweed moments where it goes, I really fancy a bottle of wine tonight. You know, and then it goes. And it's been wild. I recommend it. And I've got no, I've got no desire to go back. I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm not saying by any that I'm, I'm not saying that I'm never going to drink again, but I've got no desire to drink again. And Simone and I both feel the same about it. And at the moment, my favourite tipple, apart from this iceberg non-alcohol wine with soda water, is the apple juice that we got from the orchard last year, that we've got about 48 bottles. And that with soda water is what we do, is sit there and watch Netflix at night. And that's what I drink at night. And, you know, this thing is my only kind of real sin. Okay. Mark Cruz, haha. <laughs> Hello and good health from the heart of Texas. Yo. Any possibility of booking and cruise the edge again, providing the cruise lines are still operational? Yeah. I saw Marillion were on that cruise this year and I was like going, oh, oh. And I phoned up Lucy Jordash, the Marillion manager, we were talking and I just said, you know, I'm going and she was in the same position I was with uh, the UK tour. 
and that she was waiting on somebody to say this is cancelled rather than them cancelling because they had the same thing as I had. If they cancelled, there was no refunds and a lot of stuff. And um, and thank God they never went because I mean I would have hated to have thought, you know I would have hated to even thought myself. Never went. The Marillion boys were out on a cruise in the middle of the, the in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. You know at this point and then. You know, somebody goes down, went down with, with the infection. Now, that would be horrific. And you're quite right. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, these cruises are one of those one of those things that there's going to be a big question mark over when we finally come out of that. I mean, people are going to be very reluctant to go out. I mean, there's a lot of people going to get are going to get financially very badly hurt. I mean, uh, especially the cruise liners that are all sitting in in, in dock at the moment. I've got a friend of my mother's and his, his uh, friends of my mother's and their son is actually a captain and he's stuck on a cruise ship that is now uh, um, parked up on the, the west coast of Australia with nowhere to go. And uh, he's sitting there with his crew and on this massive liner and there's nobody to pick up anywhere. And uh, anyway, so... Cruises next year. I would love to. I'd love to do Cruise to the Edge. Although I was told that you know it's it's um, it's a very demanding, costly position to be there. It's. Uh, I've been told by the musicians who've been there. It's like be prepared. You know there is no escape, and uh, and that's. But I might be okay with it. But anyway. So. Stephen Dempster, question. I was fortunate to see you at the Royal Albert Hall back in ninety. Would you like to do a similar gig at another notable venue, but before you retire, or do you prefer the more intimate gigs like Pelican Club you played in Aberdeen, which you were at in 92? Stephen, the Albert Hall. I didn't really like the Albert Hall gig. I didn't really enjoy it. It was, um, as an artist, you kind of, there was a certain feeling of being inconsequential. You always felt that the venue and the staff were more important than the artist and the performance. And uh, I didn't, enjoy, I didn't really enjoy it. It, it was, it was, a, I mean, I'm glad, you know, I played it in 1990. I've got other bad memories from that period as well, because that was the night, EMI, there was supposed to be a big EMI delegation from big record company kind of soiree on uh, that night after the Albert Hall because it was kind of like a closing down gig. But only a few days previously, I'd entered into litigation with EMI and basically EMI withdrew all their guest tickets. Nobody was going to come down to it. So there was, that was at the start of a period that became a very ugly period in my career. Very dark and ugly period. So with the Albert Hall, I do have that side issue going on but I mean the Albert Hall you know it's a prestigious gig you know but it's really expensive to hire right it's incredibly I mean you don't do that gig to 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 basically to earn money you know if you're doing that gig it's a it's a prestige thing and I don't really feel I need it you know I, I don't you know I did it in 1990 but I mean it's not on my bucket list of gigs anymore you know I mean did it and take it off and I'm sure that well I know there are other venues that would far rather play in London than the Albert Hall so uh, that's it um, blah 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 
Oh, this is an interesting one. This is current news I am. Ian Cabby Harvey, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. How do you feel feel that because of you there's a whole generation of people called Kaylee? <laughs> Kaylee. Again, we dealt with this last week. Yeah, it's weird because, you know, you get older and now all the Kayleys are 30 year old. But <laughs> to take it up. It's always strange when you see when it comes across in the news and you're watching like Channel 4 News or whatever, right? And somebody goes, oh, blah, blah, blah. Kaylee, my ear pricks up immediately. Lo and behold, this week, right? Donald Trump's got a new press secretary called Kaylee McAnemy, I think it is, from Texas, right? And I just went, what? And I really want to know the history behind that. It's like, this is a girl called Kaylee, right? And she's seemingly 32, right? So that kind of brings her mother or her father, right? are very highly likely to be Marillion fans, right? And they're from Texas and the Marillion fans, right? So maybe mum and dad of Kayleigh McCannany or McCannany or McKinney, right? If you're watching, do get in touch and tell me because I'd love to know the history of how your daughter kind of is now Trump's secretary because she's simply got a reputation of being quite ballsy and quite right and very Trumpian, right? So I want to know how that all happened. That's, I'm sure you want to know that as well. So every time, and you're going to find it really weird, it's that when you're watching CNN, and I watch CNN at night now, because it's my favorite American kind of TV network at night. So I watch it you know, just to catch up, because I love, after we finish Netflix, we go on to CNN and we, we kind of catch up, we catch the briefings and things, you know? And, uh, but now we've got Kaylee on the, on the TV and it's going to be Kaylee giving the, the briefings. And it's like, you know, it's everything. It's gonna be really weird, right? Please welcome Kaylee McEnany. Yeah. So, oh yeah. So there's a reason why I'm feeling very strange about Kaylee's. Um, oh, that's what I promised you to do this. Wait a minute. Talk amongst yourselves for a bit, okay? Hang on. Let me get this. Pick up this as well. I don't want to knock anything over. I told you I'd play a little bit of stuff. This is, um, I've got a Torrens TD166BC Mark II turntable, right? And with a, it's a, an audio technical cartridge for those that are interested. I've had that since, I bought that in I think about 19, uh, must have been about 85, 86. And I've had that with me all the time. That's been through every every house I've ever been in. I've still got it. It's had to get a new Perspex case in it because it got broke one night after somebody fell in it. Um, there's a, a Parasound integrated amplifier that I got off, uh, that I bought off a few years ago, which is really cool. And my CD player is a Heed CD player, and uh, works really well. But the Heed takes ages to. Gotta make sure I've got the right CD here. Come on. It takes ages to open. And let me see is it this one. It takes ages to open and ages to close. You hear me? Because I'm way bit far away from the camera now. This might be it. I've got a terrible habit because when I get, I'm on a burn CD through the control room, I listen to... It's not that one. 
run CDs through in the control room and then I bring them through and I never mark them, I never write them what the hell they are. Obviously this. And it's a really bad habit. This might be it. This is uh, this should be walking on eggshells. And this is the latest mix that I'll send up by Callum. Don't tell me there's no disc in there, there's a disc in there. I should have got this prepped up before. I've, I meant to do that, but I got caught up with my mum's jigsaw. And that was one of the things that I was going to do before I came through to come on, on air with you. Just to play this. Nope. Bear with me. It's coming. It's coming. Come on, heat. Sorry.
week's Easy Sea song. And uh, it was, um, well, it's one of the kind of, one of the colours in the album. It's that William Luff, my, my press officer, um, he heard this uh, just last week and he just went, it's great because it's, an, it's another little colour in the album because we're trying to be, all the songs are different. It's like Vigil in a way. And, and that you had family business and you had the company, you had that next to View From The Hill and, and, and Vigil itself and Big Wedge. And I think the kind of, the, the bend of the album's kind of similar like that. And, and that Sea Song, and it plays a really important part in, in, in the album as well, because it's again, it's about a character in a situation, Sea Song, Sea, you know what it is. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but I'll go back to the questions. Uh, ba 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 Pete Garvey, how do you think it would have turned out if Marillion had accepted the offer of recording the soundtrack for Highlander? How would you have approached writing lyrics for it? And would you have found it a different challenge? Uh, there's some fairly iconic songs for Queen. Do you think it was a missed opportunity? Uh, any amusing stories about touring with Queen? Amusing stories to be touring with Queen, I will deal with it at another point. Uh, there are a few, but I'm not going to deal with them here. No, no. It's before the nine o'clock watershed for a kickoff. <laughs> Um, yeah, Highlander. What actually happened was that um, because of doing the videos, people had said you should become an actor. I always wanted to be an actor. When I was at Dalkey's High School, I think if I'd fallen into the theatrical side of stuff, into the, the drama um, class or whatever, my life might have been very, very different. I would have loved to have done a lot more acting. Um, I missed a lot of opportunities. And in that, then, in around about nineteen eighty-five or so, a forty-five, I went to see Sharon Hamper, who was an agent, a big agent in London at the time, and she sent me to see uh, uh, um, to be evaluated by somebody who was an acting coach, and I went to see this woman, which was another story, and um, and she said the guy's got it. Uh, and it was wonderful and suddenly it was, I, I thought, great, I'm going to have this parallel career to be an actor, but I was in a band. And there was no way that I was going to be allowed to spend, to take two months out of my life or a month or whatever to go away to a movie set and, you know, be in a movie no matter how big it was. Because the band... I had to carry on working. We were at a level in our career where things had to happen. If I'd been a solo artist at that point, then I would have gone, yeah, I'm gonna go away and do, do, I'm gonna do a movie, you know, and I would have made the time for it. And I, I, at that point, my name was big enough to get into like a, you know, to be given some really good opportunities. And one of the films that was talked about, I didn't audition for it, but was talked about was Highlander. And I think what happened was that the, the Highlander production company had gone to EMI and they were on about trying to link this, trying to get the music and that together. And I was up for the, 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 the part, which was the actual Highlander. And I was kind of quite up for it, but I never read for it. I didn't do anything on it. And I think they tried to kind of, they tried to pass off this thing. Whereas, well, the fish acts in it, then if the band do the soundtrack, then that was going to be the kind of trade-off, but it never happened, you know, and it was, it was a shame. I don't, I don't know, 
I didn't think it was a particularly great movie. I know it's a massive cult movie. I didn't particularly like the movie myself. But, um, you know, with all these false accents, you know, like running all over the place. And, uh, but, um, uh, but, yeah, so Queen got it, and, and uh, we didn't. But, it's, um, it was, but the acting thing, I, I would have loved to have done. I went up for a couple of movies back then. I was up for one of the Rambo films, and uh, I was up for a Bond movie as well at that point. Again, always the baddies. I was always up for baddies. I don't know what it is. But I always, I'm either a baddie or I'm a kind of, I'm a person of, so like, I've, I've played, uh, twice I've played kind of uh, gay actors, can you say that, I don't know. But it's, um, that's kind of between the two. And I, I wish I'd done more acting. I've, I auditioned for a lot of films in the 90s. Braveheart we discussed last, last week as well. But I mean, uh, it just kind of, they roll by me and it's kind of, it, my life became, I had to, to, to follow the music because music was basically paying for the roof above my head. And, you know, acting now is, you know, I did a film with Dave Barris called Electric Man and that was, I think, the, the last thing I did. But I would love to do more, but I've said before, screenplay writing is better suited to my brain nowadays. Uh, uh, Hi Fish, we'd love to know your views on the vinyl revival, Rick Brown. Do you still buy new vinyl? Do you prefer to play vinyl or CDs or both? And there was another question, I don't know who it came in from, asking about, you know, do you still have the old vinyl? All that, that, that vinyl's all behind me. I've still got a lot of vinyl from, I've got a lot of vinyl from uh, the 80s, mainly because it was when we signed to EMI, <laughs> it was like, here's the keys to the sweetie shop. And I used to love going into people, and I, I had lots of great friends. One of the most annoying things, when I did have that big argument with EMI in, in, in 1990, it was like I lost a lot of friends. I wasn't able to talk to a lot of people because of the, the, the whole legal shit that was going on at the time. Before then, I used to love EMI and love Manchester Square. Manchester Square was, a, was like Santa's grotto for me, right? And I used to go in and, and meet up with people like Bob Stevenson, things who was in charge, John Kavanagh, who became a manager, and I still have a good friend of mine. Um, a lot of guys out there, uh, Malcolm Hill and things, great guys. And um, I used to like, they used to say, like, anything you want, just go in the cupboard now. And they had all the albums. And it was like the Kate Bush catalogue, the main catalogue of Floyd. And, you know, you get loads of... I actually was invited. I was there. I, I was I had a, a very good friend, Alison Lewis, who was a really good friend of mine. She worked in the video department. And she got me into the, the, the little studio underneath Man Manchester Square. And it was a listening room as well. And... Um, uh, there was like a big show. Marillion actually did some demos there, the Manchester Square demos that should have been on the, 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 the script kind of remaster, but they weren't because they were crap, right? If Somebody actually said if EMI had heard the demos we did before we actually signed, we would never have been signed. But that's another story. So, anyway, in this little studio in, in Market Square, they used to have these in Manchester Square, these listening parties, and Alison got me in to listen to the playback of the final cut, Floyd's final cut. And it was incredible, right? 
and I remember I was kind of went into this I sat at the back and like, and there was all these EMI, EMI executives from all over the world you know they, they brought them all in to hear the playback of, of the final cut right and I sat there and I was like oh, wow I mean being a, a massive fan it was like this is brilliant right this is incredible and it was on beautiful speakers I mean the sound in the studio in the and the actual studio on the studio floor was incredible, right? And I'm going like, well, everybody else was walking it. All the EMI people were walking about going, it's not the wall, is it? <laughs> there's, no, there's no singles there. <laughs> and I actually got, I got the white labels of, I've got white labels of the final cut that I like, would have been kind of probably worth a lot of money, but I played them so many times, it's like they've been worn out, right? Because I used to play them a lot. But the vinyl back then, most of the vinyl that I had when I moved down to Aylesbury, I sold. There was a, the, on the, in the market, there was a, there was a market in Aylesbury, and uh, it was in the, in the, uh, next to the square, in the, the kind of modern bit, and uh, there was a, there was a guy who bought and sold records there, and I had to sell most of the vinyl to pay my rent, to be honest, and I probably lost about 70% of all my decent vinyl and you know it was you know it was either that you know either to keep a place on me or, or keep a place around me or or you know or listen to songs you know and i chose to sell the vinyl and it, you know the, the weird thing is it's like now I, when i went to try and replace all that vinyl to get back the albums or to get back the the, the titles it was like you know i ended up paying five times more more than the, the thing and the last actually coincidentally the last vinyl i got the last vinyl I bought was uh, when I was in tour and we played Aylesbury and I went into a second hand, not a second hand store, I went in a charity shop in the, the in Aylesbury High Street and I picked up a copy of Three Tons of Sobs, Heartbreaker and I got a Chris Christopherson album and I paid more for them, but four times more for them then than I would have paid for them when they originally came out in, in the 1970s. But, but I still keep my eye open for vinyl. I, I tend... I don't, I buy CDs, the last CDs I bought were, I told you last week, the Bruce Springsteen album, the, 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 the Neil Young Colorado album, I've got the new Doris Brendel album, which is great, I've got uh, a couple other bits and pieces that I pick up, but, you know, I, with, with vinyl, if I'm in, if I'm out and I'm in a charity, I'm, if I'm on a tour and I'm kicking around, I'll look in a charity store, and if I see vinyl, I'll, I'll pick it up, I mean, yeah, so I still do listen to vinyl. Um, uh, but I mean CDs are just easier. I don't download. I I I don't download albums. I don't listen to Spotify. Uh, I don't listen on MP3s. Uh, it's vinyl or CD or eight tracks because down there there is actually an eight track player. And I'll show you this. I suppose I, should, I suppose I should have said this is the good thing. My dad, right, when my dad had Dick Brothers Garage, right, he used to sell eight tracks, right? And an eight track is this. It's like a big cassette and basically what you've got is inside, you've got these kind of, there's basically four stereo channels, right? And the tape goes a lot faster than a normal cassette. 
So the sound quality is actually pretty good. But what happens is there's only so much length of tape and the heads move, right? To the corresponding track on it, right? I think I've got that right. So you've got good quality sound, but there's only a limited length of tape, which is great if you've got short songs and you've got somebody who's putting the album together for an eight track, right? They can put the songs on correctly so you don't get any jumps. Progressive rock on eight track does not work. I actually had close, I've got, I, I still have somewhere close to the edge on eight track, brain salad surgery, VLP on eight track. I said, close to the edge, because that's the sound it makes when the heads move. Right. And like, and my dad loved them. And eight tracks came out because it was truckers in America who used to listen to them. Like guys that were traveling long distances and they just throw in an eight track and it would go round and round and round while they drove the freeways, right? So eight tracks were a big hit with truckers and then it became a format. And my dad had an eight track in his car, right? And he had an eight track in the house. We had an eight track in the house, a stereo eight track, a Hitachi eight track, and it recorded, right? And I recorded a lot of Alan Freeman's early shows on this. I might even have the tape somewhere, right? And anyway, when my dad died, right? It was like, I was given all this, right? And I have all these eight tracks. And here are just, here's just two samples of eight tracks. And this should have been gone under the guilty pleasure thing. Peters and Lee. <coughs> Yes, and this has been played in this house, right? James Last, right? James Last. I've got about 30 James Last 8-tracks that my dad had. He had some great ones as well. I used to, I've got some Frank Sinatra ones, I've got Dean Martin ones, and as I said, and I bought my own 8-tracks so that when we went out in the car, I could play my own ones. I'd band on the run on 8-track. On but I mean, Peter and Lee, we can make it. An all-time hit, kids. And this is... Uh, James Last, this is Non-Stop Dancing 15. <laughs> Non-Stop Dancing 15. I think I probably got all the other ones up to 15 as well. But A-Tracks, and the thing was that when I got the A-Tracks, my dad's old player didn't work anymore. And I tried to get repaired. And it was a guy in America, and I can't remember your name, and I'm sorry, but thank you. And he sent, he, he basically, he did old hi-fi equipment, and he sent me across an A-Track, and I happened to actually have an American adapter and that track is wired up through this KEFs because these are my KEF speakers, which are absolutely gorgeous. They're beautiful. And when I listen to playbacks of the album, I listen to them on these KEFs. It's my favourite speakers. And, um, and that's kind of like you know, where it's at. I'm going to do another couple of questions and then call it. Uh, uh, da -da 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 -da. Hey Fish, ever fancy keeping bees at the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden? Yes, right? I'm gonna end up with two, two Funny Farm Kitchen Garden. By the way, if you're interested, and I know some of you aren't, we started up the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden Facebook page. We started up because my daughter Tara said to me, Dad, stop posting stuff up on, stop posting gardening things up on your Fish Facebook page. He said, people don't want to see it. They want music. and. I've been told, and I had a couple of like, there was a couple of little barbed comments about putting garden stuff up on the Fish Facebook page. So we started up the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden page. And it's called the Funny Farm because this place used to be called the Funny Farm Recording Studios. And Funny Farm Recording Studios became Millennium Studios when we needed a trendy name for the studio when we were trying to, when it was a commercial entity. And it shut down in 1998. 
I know it's my house. And when we were sitting talking around the, the, the kitchen table late one night, my daughter said, you got to change it. you got to get it. What are we going to call it? And it was like, funny farm. So it's now the funny farm kitchen garden. And she checked it out and we've got it on Instagram and we've got it on Facebook. And if you're interested in gardening or you want to have a look at something else that I do, because today, Rob Scarron, thank you again, Rob, for doing all the bit of techie stuff with me. Rob Scannon's put up a, uh, about a 15 minute uh, video of growing tomatoes and it's me growing tomatoes out in the greenhouse. And uh, so if you're interested in the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden or seeing another side of what I do, you can go there, right? But this question is like from uh, Mike Britton. Hey Fish, ever fancy keeping bees? Yes. And I actually, I was, I don't want to go into this too much, but it's, uh, I was given a, a couple of grand years ago. Oh, when I got married for the second time, I was given two two thousand by or my then wife and I were given two thousand pounds to buy hives, and it never happened, and the money disappeared right with her, right. And but the thing was, I went on a beekeeping course at that time. It was one of those things where let's expand ourselves. And I went on a beekeeping course and I really liked it. And I love honey. I love honey. And um, and we'd, we'd been on about, Simone and I have been on about beehives for a while. But they take a lot of care, a lot of attention. And this runs into the next, the next thing. You know, we would love to have hives down there. We've got the perfect space for hives down there as well, down in the orchard, right? And I would love to be able to, to have our own honey, which is, again, another thank you to the guy who brings me honey every time I play Islington Academy. Uh, and um, so, yeah, bees are definitely something we want to go to. And the last question I'm going to answer is somebody said, would you ever get a dog? And the answer is yes. I would love to get another dog. My wife, Simone, and I would love to get another dog. I used to have two German Shepherds. The last, my last German Shepherd had to, to be put to sleep very soon after I moved in this house. It was, it was very ill and it couldn't deal with moving from the house next door into the studio. It just was so confused and it was too, it was just, the dog was off its head on drugs, right? And, um, and that was, that really, that really hit me. Anybody that's ever had a dog and been through it, you know exactly what what it feels like it was, it was I was distraught and especially at that time because you know losing the house moving in here and then when I met Simona Simona had this beautiful Irish wolfhound right and it's called Borgamil and the first time I went Borgamil when I went across to meet Simona at a flat and down in Durlach and Kalsua like I was we should have been wearing brown corduroys because when I walked into this thing and I saw someone, it was higher, and there's this massive dog, right? It's, it was a horse in a flat, right? And uh, and, I th and when we went to bed at night, I used to used to come, th could open the door and come in, right? And I used to lie in bed going like, oh, what's they going to tell you? you know? said, this Magoolie is going here. And, um, and I, I fell in love with it. It was the most gentle, loving, wonderful animal, right, that I've ever known. And... Um, and really sadly, in about, uh, in, I think it was the beginning of 15, it's like Borgamo had to be put down. It, it wasn't particularly old for an Irish wolfhound, but it had problems associated with Irish wolfhounds. 
And when Simone and, and Simone and I had always said that you know this place, the, the, the Funny Farm Kitchen Garden, and this area where we live would be absolutely perfect to have an Irish Wolfhound. And being a big guy, I do not get on and don't like really small dogs, right? And we've decided that we want to get an Irish Wolfhound. And a couple of years back, Simone and I went up and uh, we were judges at the Scottish Irish Wolfhound Association uh, kind of gathering, right? And the Wolfhound gathering up across in Fife. And we saw some beautiful animals. But the thing is, as long as I'm on, if, if I'm on tour and I've got a dog, that means somebody's got to look after the dog at home, which means Simona can't come out. And we decided that when the touring finishes, then that is when we're going to get our dogs, right? Because I say plural, because we would love a pair of Irish wolfhounds and just adore them. And, uh, and that, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is the end. And I can smell the food in the background. She's hungry. Yeah, mum's hungry. So Simona's just taking the food through to my mum through the other room. So, it was nice talking at you again, or talking to you. Um, uh, I'll be back again next Friday. I've still got all this to go through. Shift loads of questions. I mean, we'll find another way to do it because there was a lot of questions to be printed off and some of you were asking the same questions. So maybe, you know, if somebody takes things, we'll find, somebody suggested it on the Facebook page. I hope you're all okay. Uh, I hope your lives are still and um okay in this lockdown like i said i'm just we're really lucky to be here and you know i'm i'm humbled by the fact we are here and able, able to deal with the situation from here right um look after yourself don't go nuts find things to do uh like i said funny farm kitchen garden you want to learn how to become a gardener i could teach you how to do little things over there um just be positive you know, and, you know, we'll get through it. There's no point in looking at the end dates because they're somewhere, 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 right? But just look after yourselves, adhere to the rules, and, you know, look after others, take care of others, and remember the community you live in, and just take care and stay alive, and I'll see you all next week. Okay, nice talking to you.